Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. So glad that you're here with us this morning. Our values as a church are the gospel, community, and mission. These are the things that undergird who we are. They give life to who we are as a church. The gospel is why we are here. We are here because of Jesus, that Jesus gave his life for us, paid for our sins so that we could be a part of God's family. And that's available to anyone who will receive Jesus. And if, if you haven't yet trusted Christ, we'd love to talk with you about that. Just fill out that connect card or drop a note there in the chat and we'll be sure to follow up with you. Um, secondly, community that uh, God created us for, for relationships. And, and just this past Wednesday, we were able to get together with all of our community groups on Wednesday night, see each other's faces on Zoom for a little bit before we got into our community groups. It's really great to just spend some time talking with people. And God created us uh, to, to be in those relationships, to be the church, to be a family together. Uh, and then lastly, mission, that, that what Jesus did for us, we tell other people about it. Uh, we, we live our lives to declare the good news of Jesus but then also live lives shaped and formed by Christ that uh, that uh, intend to spread that good news to the ends of the of the earth to, throughout our neighborhood by demonstrating the gospel as well. Just one announcement this morning. Uh, starting in the first week of February, we're going to start a, a COA course. Um, if you ever hear us uh, say COA, by the way, that's uh, short for City on a Hill. Um, and we are we really do believe in equipping uh, equipping people for life. And in our first COA course of the year is going to be Evidences for Christ. And so maybe you're watching and you're not yet a follower of Jesus. You're just exploring. And maybe your big hangup is that kind of the historicity of Jesus. Like, is, was Jesus real? Um, do we, can we have confidence that the, that the Bible's true about what it says about Jesus. This is the course for you. Or if you're just wanting to learn more, um, you can go to coahforesthills.org slash events, and you can sign up for that eight-week course. This morning, we continue our sermon series through um, uh, through our vision, our vision uh, to see every person from every culture experience the gospel. And, and so this vision series we're calling, we're calling it From Here to there. We are attempting to figure out how do we get from where we are right now toward our vision. Our vision, as we talked about last week, is an idealized reality. We really hope this is what happens. And we believe that as we live our lives making disciples, loving and serving our neighborhood, doing the everyday, ordinary, faithful things of following Jesus, that we will see everyone in our city experience the gospel. We believe this will happen. But we need kind of a roadmap to get from where we are now to there. And we began to talk about about different measures that we can look at along the way to let us know that we're going in the right direction. And the first one that we began to unpack last week was maturity. It takes maturity to help others experience the gospel. We have to understand who we are in Christ, that we have a new identity formed by the gospel, that we are part of a new family, that the way we relate to God has changed. We now relate to him as a father because of Jesus. And that He's pleased with us and he loves us and we have nothing to prove. And, and having that weight lifted off our shoulders changes everything. Um, our relationship has changed with other people. We've been brought into this family. We have new brothers and sisters. And so we live as servants. We, we uh, seek to, to live for one another, to help each other grow in maturity. And then also we join God on his mission. We, Jesus came to establish his kingdom in the world and we join him in what he does. So the gospel changes our activity or what we do. So the gospel works both in us and it also works through us. But a mistake we often make about the gospel is that we limit. When I say the gospel, I mean what Jesus has done for us. 
um, dying on the cross for us, establishing his kingdom, um, we often limit the scope of the gospel to just, it's just me and God. It's, we just limit it to this personal relationship. We limit it to the, the forgiveness of our sins. And, and it's not less than that. It's not, it definitely is that you, if you've not yet trusted Jesus, you need to have a, a, a face-to-face with him and, and have your sins reconciled. But it's also more than that. It's not just a vertical reconciliation between you and God, but it's about God making all things new. And there's also a horizontal reconciliation in the world. And the Bible makes this clear that the point from the very beginning is that there would be a people who would display the glory of God and spread it to every corner of the earth. They would be among people. So the gospel doesn't just restore our relationship with God, but it also restores our relationship with creation itself and with other people. And so I want to kind of do a a flyover of the Bible to help you see this. All the way back in Genesis chapter 1 in the creation story, uh, in Genesis 1 verses 26 through 28, we see God talking about how we will make man, man and woman, in our image. The, The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit talking there. And they're making man and woman in their image. And in this, there's this mandate. Some people call some have called this the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply, multiply to fill the earth with people who glorify and honor God. That this will be a world that reflects God's character, who He is. But we see in Genesis three, all of that gets broken. So Genesis three through eleven, we see that began to begin to come apart. That sin enters the world and it disrupts man's relationship with God, but also man's relationship with each other. And we see all sorts of just chaos happening between you know people being murdered. Um, we see uh, relational strife. We see people being spread apart based on their differences. But then in Genesis chapter twelve, fifteen, and seventeen, God reaches a man named Abraham who lived in Mesopotamia, you know, modern-day uh, Iraq, and, and he's, a, he's a herder. And, and God comes to him, and he tells him that he's going to make a people come from him that's going to bless all people. And we see this, this seed that's planted that begins to flourish and f- throughout the rest of Scripture. We see the seeds that are dropped in other places. We see that there's a vision for a people from among all people, that all people would be blessed by God. And by his people, we see um, this multi-ethnic vision that, that these are people from the Middle East. In God's story in the Old Testament, we see people from Africa. We see both Joseph and Moses take African wives. We see Ruth, who is a Moabite, the Cushites. We see them throughout all throughout the Bible. Um, the uh, Cush would be modern-day Ethiopia. There was an Ethiopian eunuch who advised Jeremiah the prophet, and then we get all the way to the New Testament and the very first non-Jewish convert to Christianity in the book of Acts was a black man, a man from Ethiopia. This is not a coincidence. God's intention and God's plan from the very beginning was to bring a multi-ethnic people, people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation to glorify him together as this new family. Jesus comes building a kingdom, talking about a kingdom that invites all people in this new multicultural family. There's this horizontal reconciliation that leads to relational healing. And we see how the work of Christ did this in Ephesians chapter two. In Ephesians two, it's not just a a religious um, um, fissure that's that's, uh, repaired, it's also an ethnic one. It's something that's repaired where people, both Jew and Gentile, are brought together in one new family called one new man 
a new type of person, a new type of person that follows God, that doesn't mute ethnic distinctives, but vivifies them. And so Jesus, through his cross, invites anyone who's willing to be a part of this family and that they can enter on equal footing. Galatians 3, verses 28 through 29 It says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Again, that doesn't mean you stop being Jewish or Greek or male or female, but that all of us get access through what Jesus did, not because of some sort of earthly distinction. And we are united in Christ. The good news for us is we pursue a multicultural vision is that we already have unity in Christ through what he's done for us. And we look forward out of that unity towards that Revelation 7 vision where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. So we long to be a multicultural church. And so a local church is a local expression of, of a church of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation in a particular time and a particular place living to represent Christ and spread his glory to our city. And we hope to increasingly see that, to grow in ethnic and cultural diversity as a church. We, we long to be a redeemed cross-segment of our neighborhood and the surrounding neighborhoods near Forest Hills. And this is why we love Boston. Boston is one of the most incredibly diverse cities in America. There's a multitude of culture and language. Uh, In fact, if you're in Boston, you're two and a half times more likely to be a first-generation immigrant than anywhere else in the country. We chose to be right here by Forest Hills on purpose because there's this beautiful collision of culture and neighborhood that all come together at the Forest Hills train station. We chose that on purpose to, so that we could image this beautiful picture of the church. So why would we choose a passage on racial struggle to talk about this vision to be multicultural? Because the Galatians church that we see here in Galatians 2, the early church, is a lot like us. There's a vision out there that we're not quite to yet. We're longing for it. What we are attempting And longing to be a multicultural church is not easy because our natural differences want to pull us apart. In fact, there was a a missiologist in the mid-20th century named Donald McGavern who came up with this idea called the homogeneous unit principle. And he believed it was actually easier for churches to just kind of all be together with people who were like them. The fastest way to grow a church was to have just white people or just black people or just Hispanic people or just Asian people. And so they pushed toward this, but the question is, is is that biblical? And I would say, no. We're called to be a multi-ethnic, multicultural family. And what we see is this beautiful mess with all the struggles and misunderstandings and starts and stops, but also victories and sweet, hard-earned joy. And so we look to that Revelation 7 vision with hope. We look to it like a dream, much like Dr. King's dream. Martin Luther King, we celebrate him this weekend. And I don't want to reduce uh, Dr. King to a single speech or a part of his speech. And and I don't want to ignore um, aspects of of the real challenges that he called, called into question. 
we tend to look at uh, passages from the I have a dream speech as it, when, when he talked about the day uh, that he longed to see sons of slaves and slave owners eating together. Or as he talked about Alabama, where I'm from, uh, about little black boys and little black girls being able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. And many of us could probably quote almost verbatim the very end of the I have a dream speech where he says, and when this happens... And when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. But you don't get there until you look at the first part of that quote. And when this happens, when what happens? When you go through the hard work of making things right. The hard work of seeing change happen. See, a multicultural church is a dream and it's a vision, but it's also something that's hard work. But it's beautiful and it's worth it. And I believe that when our city sees a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation glorifying Jesus together as our greatest hope, there could be no better, more vivid picture of the gospel. So how do we pursue this vision? We want us to look at the Galatian church and how they worked out all the complications of being a multicultural church. The first thing they did and the first thing that we need to do is we must recognize the threats to unity. We have to recognize all the threats that are posed against our unity as a family. In verses 11 through 14, Paul t- is talking to the Galatians, tells them a story of the apostle Peter and his failure at Antioch. And this was particularly hurtful for Peter to do this because Peter was one of the leaders. He was one of the dudes in the early church. If he was living today, he would have a massive Twitter following. He would be uh, one of the most looked to people whenever a crisis happened. He was the guy. And and so Peter had been there with Jesus. He was there at Pentecost when 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus. But he was also a part of the story in Acts chapter 10 when he met a man named Cornelius. And Cornelius was Italian, a part of a group called the Italian Cohort. That's that's my people. That's my family. Uh, I'm going to start calling my family the Italian Cohort. Uh, and, and so God shows up in this vision, and in this, all of a sudden, this big blanket starts coming down from heaven, and there's barbecue, and there's pork chops, and there's bacon on this thing, and, and, and God tells him in a dream, rise, kill, and eat. And he refuses. He said, God, I, I've never eaten anything unclean in my life. He was a good Jew. But God said, what I call clean, do not call common. He said, something's changing, that the law doesn't get you in good relationship with me. Jesus does. And these Gentile brothers who were once called unclean are now a part of God's family. And so Peter becomes an advocate. He begins to advocate for Gentile believers before his Jewish believers that they have equal footing and equal standing. In Acts chapter 11, he fights for them and he takes some heat from some people on the far right who were appalled at the fact that he would even eat in the same room with these Gentile brothers and sisters. But yet he convinces them that no, they have received the Holy Spirit. God is working in them. We only need to trust Jesus. And it leads to one of the most influential churches in the entire New Testament, the church at Antioch. 
The church at Antioch was known for three things. First of all, they were known for the first people to be called Christians. They were called Christ ones. This was a derogatory term toward them, uh, but they, they wore it like a badge of honor. And so the term Christian comes from the church at Antioch. Secondly, they were known for church planting. All the church planting you see in the book of Acts, them sending Paul is because of the church at Antioch. And then thirdly, it's multicultural leadership. This was a church where Paul, who was a Jew, who was uh, also a Roman citizen, Barnabas, who was a a Jew. Uh, We see uh, Simeon, also called Niger, or or the black, and he had dark black skin. You had Lucius from Cyrene. You had people who were from Cyprus. There was this really incredible, beautiful, multi-ethnic leadership team. And so Peter spends significant time in Antioch, enough time that he builds a reputation as somebody who's hanging out with them. He's eating pulled pork. He's becoming a friend. He's enjoying the freedoms that Christ says he has. He's treating them like family until he doesn't. And it was so hurtful. We see in verse 12 that men, certain men from James came. These were people who were far right, who held uh, very strong conservative uh, values that you had to believe and, and fulfill the old Mosaic law in order to be in God's family. They weren't sent by James himself. They were overzealous and went on their own. And what Peter does is he pulls back from eating with people that he called brother and sister. This wasn't just a religious rejection. It was a racial rejection. These men from James held that Gentiles were not full followers unless they took on the cultural Jewish marks of of food laws and customs and dress and even circumcision. And they looked down on them as a sort of second class if they didn't do so. There was this air of superiority where their culture became the standard And one of the greatest threats to our unity as the people of God, particularly in a multicultural church, is when race or culture becomes superior. Racial superiority, whether explicit or implicit. And in America, our particular brand of racial superiority has come in the form of white supremacy or superiority. Racism is not an American invention. People have been discriminated against since the beginning of the, uh, the, uh, the fall, since the beginning of sin entering the world. It's as old as human history. And numerous times in the Bible, people oppressed or looked down upon others because of their ethnicity. This was not prescribed. I wasn't saying you should do this, but this was a description of how broken we are. Moses, his siblings actually uh, were discriminatory toward his African wife. Yet particularly woven in our history in America is this idea of white supremacy. And the flip side of that is a particular inferiority for anyone who is not white. There's always an other to compare to. The modern conception of race and racism began as Europeans began to coalesce around the idea of being white, where all these other European peoples would have considered themselves different ethnicities. They coalesce around this idea of being white in order to justify the enslavement of Africans as inferior. It became so ingrained that Darwin and his theory of evolution actually held that people who were of darker skin tone were less evolved than those of whiter skin tone. 
And this inferiority came out in questions such as, did people with dark skin have souls? Could they learn? Could they be saved? At one point, uh, African slaves were deemed as three-fifths human. They were only given part of the Bible in order to justify slavery. And we saw this this thread of inferiority uh, pass on from slavery to Jim Crow um, to segregation. And it has found its way to more implicit forms of bias. And so superiority and inferiority are, are easy to make part of a culture. And it often comes out in subtle ways. It can come out in the Christian world. Where sometimes churches of color are said to not have good theology or not to be intellectual traditions. The particular forms of worship are deemed less godly. Oftentimes we can ignore the experience of people of color or, or maybe for those of us who are, 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 are of majority culture would say that we are experts on a, a culture other than our own and we often ignore the experiences of people of color. Experiences that even many of us Christians don't understand who, who tend to be, who, who are white. W.E.B. Du Bois referred to this idea of being black and being a person of color, or being black, I mean, being American and a person of color or black as a double consciousness. Eric Mason described it this way. He said, most African-Americans have had at least two life-altering experiences that are burned into their memory. The moment they realized they were black and the moment they realized that was a problem. So we have a hard time being one in our country because of this history of superiority and inferiority. It actually even led to the creation of the first black church in the 1790s when Richard Allen, attempting to worship at the Methodist Episcopal Church in Philadelphia, was thrown out for wanting to pray with white members. And what formed from that was the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And what Paul says about this type of racial superiority, uh, treating people as other, as inferior, is that this is not in line with the gospel, that this is a gospel issue. In verse 14, he says, this conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So he confronts Peter. And so the book of Galatians is this book that's all about the idea that the gospel is Jesus plus nothing else. And tucked in here is this story of how we can tend to make culture in addition to the gospel. We can make it Jesus plus our efforts, or we can make it Jesus plus cultural norms. And what can begin to happen in any church is that one culture becomes dominant and begins to impute expectations of that culture as godliness on others in that church. It can be expectations about time or timeliness. It can be how family and kids interact, the role of a husband and a wife, or that a a mom should stay home with the kids. All of these things can become things that get added to the gospel and get added to what it looks like to faithfully follow Jesus. But the call to Jesus is not the call to a particular earthly culture. Tony Evans says that God is not asking blacks to be white or whites to be black, but for both to be biblical. See, when we mix anything with the gospel, we get a mutation. And it can take on insidious forms. We saw this a a week and a half ago on Capitol Hill as as cultural ideology, a, a type of white supremacy, a political ideology 
formed into something called Christian nationalism. A hope in a political savior, a desire for power, not for Jesus. And what was striking to me as I watched that scene, and I spent all Wednesday afternoon just glued to the TV watching, trying to wrap, wrap my head around it. It was striking as I saw Jesus saves signs next to the Confederate flag. Jesus saves signs in the same frame as a noose. This ugly syncretism that took nationalistic promises made to Israel and conflating them to attempt to apply them to America, tying Christianity's thriving in existence to political success in America, to get an outcome that Esau Macaulay says that you have to bend truth in order to get power. And if you're watching this and you're not a Christian, I just want to plead with you and hope you understand this. That was not biblical Christianity. That was not the Jesus of the Bible. Because yes, Jesus saves, but, but not through power, but through giving up power, through laying down his life and taking on the form of a servant, through loving the poor and the, the oppressed, by inviting all who will receive him by faith. Christianity is not about our nation, but about going to the nations. You can't add anything to the gospel because when you do, you pervert the gospel. And for many of us who are listening to this, I would dare to say that Christian nationalism is not our temptation. But we can easily add cultural superiority in very subtle ways. We can also threaten our unity through fear. Another aspect we see here with Peter is Peter caved. He, he was afraid of breaking solidarity with his ethnic brothers, and he caved to them. The same with Barnabas, who he led down that path. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, was the nicest guy, but as one commentator put it, the besetting sin of a tender heart is compromise. We are called to fight and have courage and stand up for those who are typically oppressed. That's part of what it means to be a multicultural church is to bear one another's burdens and particularly to do that for those who have historically been oppressed. And this is why we must cling to the gospel so tightly. Because in situations like this, when culture looks to supersede the gospel, the gospel is at stake. And But the good news for us is this. Secondly, that we, might, we can rest, we must rest in and live out of the work of Christ. What we need is the gospel. Because the gospel radically changes everything. And when we apply it to our lives, we apply it to everything, it turns everything upside down. It transforms us. Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, here's how the gospel roots out racial superiority. It deals with our idols. The gospel is not just what saves you from your sins, but it uproots and overturns everything in your life that's not submitted to Christ. And so racial superiority has a root of idolatry. And Paul challenges this in verse 15. He says, we, so he identifies with his Jewish brothers. He's ethnically Jewish. That's good. That's okay. 
not a problem. It's something to actually be celebrated. We're Jews by birth. And then he says, not Gentile sinners. That was used often as a pejorative to say that you don't belong. You're second class. You don't get in. But verse 16, Paul drills right at the heart of their idolatry. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. See, they had lifted culture and this adherence to the law to an inordinate place of worship. And the idea that racism is actually idolatry actually can give us compassion. Now, it seems like a strange word to to kind of hitch on the idea of racism and how we combat racism. But you notice Paul didn't say, you know what, Peter, you broke the racism rule. He said, you're not in line with the gospel. There's still an area of your life where an idol has hold. And Tim Keller says of the idolatry of racism, he says, the reason for racism racism is you're trying to find something besides Jesus Christ as a way of cleansing and beautifying yourself. You're adding something. Jesus isn't ravishing you like he should. Jesus isn't enough for you and you have to get a leg up. You're not in line with the gospel. You're forgetting you're a sinner saved by grace. And here's how this gives us compassion. It's because I do that too. Maybe racial bias isn't the main problem, and and I am not above that. But something has inordinate control and adoration in my life, in your life. See, notice that Paul doesn't say that being Jewish is bad. Just don't hope in it. Don't misuse it. Don't misuse the law. It was okay for for them to be proud to be Jewish. Paul was proud to be a Jew. In Romans chapter 9, he talks about his pride and his longing for his Jewish brothers to trust Christ. I think it's a good thing when we identify with our culture. I went to an Italian restaurant in the North End with my wife. I'm, I'm part Italian, part Irish. And that's been one of the most fun things about connecting back here in Boston. And I actually, was, as I was sitting there, felt very comfortable. And I missed the fact that I didn't get to grow up with an, a culturally ethnic Italian upbringing. It's a good thing. Culture is good. Just don't impute cultural expectations as the standard on others. See, here's what the gospel does for us. It helps us to enjoy our own culture while also being able to celebrate and see the beauty in others. And it's kind of like when a bride puts on a wedding dress. When we, and there's a reason Jesus uses this imagery uh, to help us see his relationship with the church. Because when the bride puts on a wedding dress, it's like putting on a new identity. Same thing for a husband. When he comes to get married, he puts on that tux. He's putting on a new identity. He's, he's entering into a new relationship, but it doesn't change the fact that she's who she is. It doesn't change her heritage. It doesn't change her past. It doesn't change who she is. When she comes down the aisle, she is who she is, but she's probably the most beautiful version that anybody has ever seen. In Christ, here's what happens is you don't stop being black. You don't stop being Latin American. You don't stop being Asian. You don't stop being white, but you become the most God-honoring and beautiful version of you possible. And you're able to see the beauty in others as well. 
The gospel deals with our idolatry, but it also helps us deal honestly with our history. Paul confronting Peter hurt. It hurt. They're friends. They probably have private conversations, and Peter just wasn't getting it, and Paul had to say it publicly. But yet Peter received it with humility. And when you look at Acts 15, it's apparent that Peter changed because at that council, he fought for the rights of his Gentile brothers. Now, some might say that focusing on the past actually creates more division. Like, why can't we just move forward? Why can't we just heal? But actually acknowledging our past leads to healing, having an honest account. Because personally, that's how you came to Christ. You had to have an honest account of your sin. You have an honest account. You couldn't come to Christ and say, you know what? I'm going to cover up this part and I'm going to leave out this part. I'm just going to give you a little bit of my life. No, Jesus said, I want all of it. I want all your mess, all your sin, all your junk, and I will deal with it. I'll give healing. See, both Paul and Peter cling to verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul could do so by confronting his friend and Peter could do so by dealing with his, his sin. And, and they both could recognize and consider the history of how Jews had treated Gentiles in the past and how that had multiplied the hurt that they saw. As we come into this new family as, as a, a multi-ethnic, multicultural people as a church, we're bringing in history and baggage. We're bringing history and baggage in the way that others have been treated, the way that uh, people of color in our church have been treated and, and, uh, and discriminated against because of the color of their skin or their country of origin. There's historic hurts that we have to address and deal with with grace and with care. And my hope for City on the Hill is this, and this is why I have great hope, is the gospel helps us by leveling the playing field. We didn't get in because of our ethnicity, so we can celebrate all cultures. We didn't get in on our efforts so we can rest. There's nothing to earn here. We didn't get in on our goodness so we cling to his. As we close, let me give you a few practical ways I see us getting there and continuing to pursue this multicultural vision. Firstly, we need to continue to grow in awareness. We gotta be willing to learn and grow in our understanding of cultures, particularly different than your own. I really encourage you to read books, listen to podcasts, hear the stories of people who come from a different cultural background than you. We, we will provide resources this week for you to, 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 to check out and look at and listen from multiple different cultures. Secondly, we need intentional, gracious relationships. This is why we hope our community groups are diverse. We, we pray they're, they're diverse. This is why we build friendships just to be friends. We learn a lot by just being friends with people. And the grace part comes in because there's room for missteps. Listen, most of the issues we face are not going to be like Paul or, or like Peter here, but they're going to be ones based out of ignorance and just not knowing. And we have to have grace with one another as we stumble, as we look to Jesus together. And lastly, leadership. You know, Having a multicultural leadership helps us not to center on one culture. And we've made some steps here. We, we, we have team leads from, from different cultures. We're inviting people to help not just have a voice at the table, to help, but help build the culture at the table, building the table of this church. But we long for, we pray for, we seek a greater representation in, in multicultural leadership among our deacons and our elders and our staff. 
We can pursue this because Jesus pursued us. Jesus came and he gave his life for us and he called us friends. And what he did in that was he was calling together a family from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And if you're not a part of that family, if you don't yet know Jesus, we'd love to talk with you about that. Let us know how we can pray for you in that. As we pursue this vision together, church, let us cling to Christ. Let us honestly deal with our hearts as Jesus helps us fulfill this vision. We pray that. Let's, let's, uh, let's pray.